long before uh, the, all the COVID started, were learning and preaching and teaching through the book of, of Ephesians. Uh, God had us here. And if you don't think that in today's world, the world that we live in today, we're in, in spiritual warfare, then, then I, I don't know what else you need to see. And I'm not just talking about the, I, I'm not necessarily even thinking eschatologically or end times and I've had some people that are, you know, the, oh no, they're going to chip us and all this kind of stuff and that's not what I'm talking about. Here, here's the reality. In the last uh, two months, suicides in southeastern United States have gone up around 20%. Um, my normal day today, I would say, and I know that this is just anecdotal, but my personal ministry has blown up with marriage problems, family rearing problems, and some of that's to be expected, right? I mean, we're all, a lot of us for, have been around each other and home more than we have in a long time. Um, I know that if you go to Lowe's, there's a lot of men that don't look excited about buying all that decking material. Um, a lot of guys that I know that are, that are still working their job because they're essential. They're coming home and all of a sudden finding a lot, a lot of mulch laying in the front yard. You got some stuff to do, honey. Um, and so there's going to be some of that stuff naturally. I get that. But right now, if you turn on your TV, there's a constant barrage of negativity. Financially, we're all going to die. The COVID is going to kill us. Come October, there's not going to be any food. It's just blah, 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 negativity. If you get on your Facebook, which I wouldn't strongly recommend, but if you get on Facebook, it's all negativity. If it's not the COVID, it's people griping about the COVID, or it's people griping at each other because they're, they're fussing and feuding about some other stupid thing. And so if, if what's, what we talked about last week with the helmet of salvation, if what's coming at us over and over and over again is everything's bad, everything's terrible, everything's uh, falling apart, then what are you going to be thinking all the time? And so... What Paul is talking about here is in the spiritual warfare that we experience right now, how do you live in the joy of the Lord? How are you supposed to get up every morning and go, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. How are we supposed to do that? How are we supposed to stand and be the people of God and live Jesus out to everybody around us in the midst of all of this? You cannot tell me that you aren't fatigued emotionally and spiritually from all the stuff that's going on. I, I, I just, every, it seems like every new, new problem, you know, where I, I just, this morning, opened up Facebook, found out that we're all going to freeze to death the next 12 years. It's like, I thought we were just global warming. Can we make up our mind? It's tiring. It's exhausting. And yet Paul tells us, stand. We are to be different. We are to be light. We are to be people who do things differently than everybody else. We are to stand. And so he tells us exactly how to do that. And so he walks us through it. Fasten on the belt of truth. Now we talked about this belt of truth. If a Roman soldier would have a tunic that he wore, and when it came time to get, go to battle, he'd reach through his legs and pull that tunic up tight and put on a belt and that, when the, a Roman soldier tightened that belt around his waist with that tunic and sash tucked in, that means we were, it's about go time. We're about to roll. The first thing that we have to recognize is, is that we are in a battle. 
as believers, we don't have the luxury of just floating through life. If you allow the current of life to carry you along and aren't fighting, that river naturally flows to hell. you got to be in the fight. So we saw the belt of truth. We saw the breastplate of righteousness. It's the part that, as Donna said, it, it protects your vital organs. And that righteousness is both the imputed righteousness of Jesus that we cannot earn and the fact that Paul is calling us, hey, most of your problems wouldn't be there if you just do the right thing. When given a choice to sin or not sin, don't sin. Do good stuff. I, I've uh, Walking around on Taylor, Ann and I like to walk up and down Taylor here in Glencoe, and there's, there's a person that has a sign in their front yard. It just says, be kind. That's all it says. And I like that sign. You know, if we just did the right thing, don't sin. That's going to protect you. I think too often in our culture, we don't say anymore, stop sinning. And so that's what Paul is saying here. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Shoes for your feet, the readiness given by the gospel peace. The way you can be ready to go, the way that your feet can be protected is recognizing that Jesus earned peace with the Father for us. You didn't earn it on your own. And that, when Jesus hung on that cross and he said, it is finished, and the temple veil was torn from top to bottom, the problems that we have with God, the fact that his wrath naturally is deserved by us, that was taken care of. There's a word in the Bible that's propitiation. I remember here preaching on that and saying, okay, during the course of the day, you've got to use the word propitiation. That's not a word we use all the time. I was preaching in a little group of, uh, of Latinos in Coleman. We were, Ann and I were helping start a church among Latinos, and uh, I, I was trying to preach in Spanish, and uh, my Spanish skills are iffy at best, and so I was doing a lot of just reading what the text says, and I came across the verse that says, for, for Jesus' blood is the propitiation for our sin. And the Spanish word for propitiation, this is something you can all learn, is propitiaciones. So there you go. Um, they, uh, so I stopped, and I looked at this crowd of, of migrant workers and said, who here knows what propitiation means? Every hand in the room went up. I'm like, you guys are lying. You don't know what propitiation means. And so I looked at the first guy in front of me. I said, all right, what does propitiation mean? Pointed at him. He said, well, uh, I grew up in Guatemala, and when I was a kid, what we would do is every year in the spring when the, the snow would melt in the mountains and cause the rivers to swell, we would, as a village, everybody would pitch in a, a peso here, peso there, and we would get gather up enough money to send somebody to go buy a bottle of wine. And we would take that wine and pour it in the river to propitiate the river god so that the river didn't overflow the banks and flood the village. And I'm like, that is the best definition of propitiation I've ever heard, and I'm stealing it. From now on, I'm going to use that. God is angry with us because of our sin, rightfully so. There's nothing we can do about it. Every person in here probably has had the experience where you've, come, you've done something you're not supposed to do. You got a ticket. For me, my kids, every time report cards come out, they're like, whoa, report card day. We're going to go to Krispy Kreme and get some donuts. Report card day for me was the day of reckoning. 
I would know a week out report card day was coming and I would be losing sleep. Oh, dear Lord, please let, let that be a D. Oh, God, please. I'm begging now. I didn't study any, but oh, God, please cause this teacher to have mercy on my soul. My prayer life got caught up the week before report cards. And on Fridays, when there were those report cards, and I can still picture them in my mind with Odin piano printed on the front, I hated those people because of those stupid report cards. And I would be on the bus, and I would look, and then I knew when my parents saw that I got another F in conduct, I'm going to get wore out. I knew it. Something needed to propitiate the anger in my father. And I was going to have to pay the price. God is angry and rightfully so. Our father is angry, but Jesus came and took our whooping for us. And recognizing that puts us to work. We can now go serve Jesus because our debt's been paid. Nobody in here can say, because of that thing that I did when I was 18, there's no way that God can use me. Nobody can say that. The anger, the righteous, correct anger of God has been handled. And so we've got the readiness made by the gospel of peace. So we have shoes on our feet. We have the shield of faith, and we've talked a lot about that. That shield is interlocking. That shield feeds my brother and and sister beside me in Christ just as much as it protects me. That shield of faith, we saw it in this room. There's not a person in here that as we were singing and you were hearing the voices of God's people around you that your chest didn't swell. Our faith feeds each other. And when those darts come and those darts do come, It's recognizing who we have faith in. The important thing about faith that we have to remember is what we're putting our faith in. We all walk around putting faith in stuff. I use the example of the bridge. I, right now, am putting faith in Bruce Lockmiller's ability to build a stage. He did a pretty good job. And so what the main point of faith is to recognize that our faith is in the Father. He's going to do what he said he would do. He is going to faithfully care for us. And that's going to protect us. As we read the news and we're looking at, oh, dear Lord, because this news will say this, this news will say that, and I don't know what I'm going to do. Ah, we're all going to die. And that's the second, ah, so you kids who are keeping the word thing, that's two. Um, My faith is in God. If I die tomorrow, I know what's going to happen to me. The helmet of salvation. We've got to protect what goes through our mind. For where a man thinks, that's what he is. What you let dwell in your head controls how you act. If you walk around all the time saying that you're a loser and you can't do anything, you're right. That's just the reality. I don't know if you guys watched the little video that we've been making after the service, but one of the things that I thought that, that Donna and Matt and Brian brought up about this was the, one of the main ways I can control what goes on in my head is I controlling who's, who I'm around, who I'm allowing to influence me. If you hang around with a bunch, a bunch of losers that are always talking negative, you're going to be a loser that always talks negative. So I can control who I'm around, who I'm surrounding myself with. And I thought that was a good point. Finally, we come to the sword of the Spirit. So 
Donna had the broad sword. We normally think of that. I brought uh, my Marine Corps sword, which is a uh, cavalry saber. This is what we think of, right? Her sword, my, this sword. This is what we think of when we read Sword of the Spirit. We think of a, a long sword, sword that's going to reach out and get somebody. But if you think about how the Romans fought and what we've talked about with the shield, how they would make that turtle, how they would interlock those shields where they were over their head, this wouldn't be really practical. How am I going to swing this without cutting off that guy's head, this guy over here's head, right? So the word sword, let me read uh, a note from a biblical archaeologist who, who has studied this. He says, um, the Greek word for sword in Ephesians 6.17 is makera. It was a typical sword about 6 inches to 18 inches long, carried by the common soldier. It would inserted in a sheath or scabbard attached to the soldier's side that could be easily pulled out in the event of hand-to-hand combat. So think less this and think more this. Something that's on their side. This is a, a K-bar, 6 to 18 inches long that somebody wore on their side that they could quickly draw in hand-to-hand combat during World War II, if you read in the old breed at Peleliu, you read about Marines that had to fight hand-to-hand, K-bar to K-bar. That's real battle. That's in the trenches. Last week, we talked about the fact that, that spiritual warfare is real. The enemy doesn't care what he uses to pull you down whether it's depression or whether it's walking around thinking that nothing's going to bother you. He doesn't care what the method is, but it's real. It gets dirty. It gets ugly. It gets nasty. And you've got to be ready to fight. You've got to be ready to get face-to-face. So that interlocking shield would move forward, and then those little swords would come out and cut down any enemies in front of them. If you read Julius Caesar's uh, uh, Conquest of Gaul, it's amazing how often those phalanxes, you could have uh, 50, 60, or 20,000 Roman troops going up against 60 to 100,000 Gaulish troops, and the battle would end and there'd be two Roman deaths. How is that possible? Because they kept their formation, they did what they were supposed to, and they had the right equipment. God has given you the right equipment. And then one of the most fundamental tools that you have when the enemy gets on you, when the enemy's in your face, when you don't think you can take it anymore, is God's Word. It's the sword, not your sword, it's the sword of the Spirit. It's God's sword. And we own possession of it. God has been gracious to give us His Word. Paul does not leave us ignorant what the sword of the Spirit is. It is the Word of God. We've said it before, I'll say it again. If you want to hear God speak, read God's Word. If you want to hear God speak audibly, read it out loud. You've got a sure word from the Lord. We don't need a new word. We've got God's Word. I knew that was going to happen. In 2 Timothy, it says, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God might be complete, equipped for every good work. 
Psalm 119 says, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from God's mouth. Now think about this. If you were to go, now as Americans, we don't miss many meals. In fact, if we're a little late, if I'm a little late on the service, some of you are going to be thinking, I'm about to starve to death. I hadn't eaten in two hours. You start looking around saying, well, maybe it's going to be the Donner Party. He's looking kind of good. We don't miss meals. But let's say that today you couldn't eat until 6 o'clock tonight. How well do you think you would do trying to help somebody move? Doing any kind of strenuous work at all? You'd be weak. Right? Nutrition is a huge... Glenn just went on, on a 14, 15-mile bike ride. Did you eat before you went? It doesn't get any better. Bologna biscuit with maters. You had your carbs. You got you a lot of fat. Uh, got you have your sodium. It's all in there. You got your nutrition. And yet I'm constantly answering questions of believers who say, I just feel like in my spiritual walk I'm anemic. I don't have any energy. I can't, I'm getting overrun by the enemy, and I don't understand why. If you don't feed yourself by reading God's word, you can't win this fight. It's not possible. So often people say, the spiritual life, I just can't do this. And yet God's word sits on their coffee table covered in dust. It's not possible. When I feel like and maybe I'm alone in this, but this happens to me. Sometimes at the end of the day, my thoughts will seem like they're racing at a thousand miles an hour and can't latch on to something. It's like, and I'm a fixer. Like most men, I'm a natural mechanic. If something's broke, I want to fix it. In this situation that we're in right now, you can't fix anything. And so my brain will just go on overlook. And it's like I'm anxious and I can't, can't concentrate on any one thing because it's going to bah, 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 bah. The only way I've ever learned to calm myself is to get alone and read the Psalms out loud. And as I'm doing that, I have found that a peace will just wash over me. As I, I'll even personalize them. If David says, the people of God, I'll change that to Tom Harrison as I'm reading it out loud. That God, you are Tom Harrison's sword and buckler. I, had, I have found that to be so soothing that I have developed a practice. When I'm with a person who is soon to die, I will read the Psalms out loud at their bedside. I had a man, I was pastoring him, um, who was dying of stomach cancer. And any of you have been around somebody that dies of stomach cancer, it's a horrible, horrible disease. Before he got sick, he was a great mountain of a man. He was a farmer. He'd lived his whole life uh, in, on the same house. Uh, there was a family burial plot on their property. And he was a big man, larger than life. And he was diagnosed with cancer, and he just wasted away. You've all, you know the scene if you, where the living room, all the furniture had been shuffled around so that a hospital bed could be put in the living room, and families in and out, people bringing food over, and he's laying there with uh, pain, 
medication patches on, so he's kind of barely even conscious or coherent because of the pain. He had wasted down to, I remember helping his wife changing the, the bedding, and this great mountain of a man, I could sweep over and pick him up and hold him while she quickly grabbed the, the sheets. He probably weighed 75, 80 pounds when he died, and in horrible, horrible pain. So I'd, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to minister to this family, but I, I just would sit at his bed, and I'm reading through the Psalms out loud. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm just going to be honest with you, I didn't have any faith. I'm thinking to myself, I'm wasting my time. I'm wasting my time, I'm wasting their time. But the whole family's in the room, so you've got to keep doing it, right? You can't just go, ah, this is stupid, and put the Bible up. So I, I'm really doing it out of guilt more than anything, because he's, 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 he's in that, that medicated stupor. And I get to Psalm 132. I lift my eyes to the hill from where my help comes. My help comes from the Lord. And I finished Psalm 132 and started just Psalm 133. And he reached up his hand and started tapping my Bible. And I leaned down to get close to his, his head and he said, read it again. Because in that moment, he knew there was no hope in this life. He knew good and well that everything he had worked for in that farm was gone. All the work that he had done to build that family, was he was walking away from. He knew that in this life there was no hope. But he also had faith that the Lord, when he says, I'm your help, I'm your sword, I'm your buckler, that God does what he said he would do. And that after that last breath, he would be in the presence of his Savior. And he wanted to hear it again. God's word is quick and powerful. Because nothing this world can offer you can comfort you at that moment. Nothing this world can make available. I could have walked in there and said, here's a million dollars. And he would not have cared. But God's word at that moment was rich like a honeycomb. Read it again. Read it again. We have access to that power all the time. And we let it just hang out. Lay it around like it's a coffee table book. It's worthless if we don't open it and read it. You have a weapon like no other. You have a weapon that the enemy fears and quakes. Pick it up. Use it. Read it. Open it. Eat it. Breathe it. Live in it. That's your weapon. No Marine would be caught in a combat scenario without this. Nobody. And yet we think that we can fight the Christian fight and walk the Christian walk on our own. We are fools. We are called people of the book. And if that ceases to be the truth, then we are not the people of God. God breathed, 2 Peter 1.21. It's literally God breathing. I want to address, uh, back when we were in North Carolina, I had a guy say to me something one time that, that's fitting, and I want, to, I want to address that. I told somebody as we are coming in, you know your preacher's redneck if he brings in the uh, rebuilder's manual or motor manual that says it's, uh, to preach from. Okay, so uh, we were talking about whether or not God's Word was applicable to our lives today in the 21st century. Does it apply to what we do today? And he said, and I like the way he put it, he said, the Bible is not a transmission manual. 
It didn't tell me anything about how to fix a transmission, so I need a different kind of book for that. If I'm going to go work on the Jeep, which if you've ever owned a Jeep, you know you have to do often. But if I'm going to go work on the Jeep, I don't go looking in Ezekiel for how to fix a transmission linkage. So, you know, you can extrapolate that out. Think of all of our lives. Where in the Bible does it address? I mean, my job, obviously, it addresses quite a bit. But if you're a nurse, if you, you, uh, you're an engineer, you're an electrician, you're a cop, you're, where in the Bible does that, is that covered? There's nothing in the Bible that tells me how to fix a transmission linkage. So is, when we, as preachers or teachers, say God's Word is sufficient, it's not just inerrant, it's enough. How is that true? Here's the reality. God's Word doesn't deal with transmissions, and I'm glad it doesn't. God's Word deals with how the person I'm supposed to be as I work on that transmission. Anybody in here who's ever worked on a transmission know you have a strong desire to say really dirty words, and a lot of them. Because there's all these little gears that don't seem to logically fit together. Then when I go to the, the parts house to get a spline to get that transmission, made it up with the motor, and they give me the wrong one, I want to tell that guy how big of an idiot he is. God's Word deals specifically with that. God's Word deals with the substance of who we are as we do being a cop, being an engineer, being an electrician. It is more applicable than anything else because the kind of man and woman that we are is way more important than what we know. So let me give you an example that will, I hope will hit home because we've all, we're all living this life. If you were to go right now and log on to your Facebook account and scroll around, I guarantee you that you would be able to find one of your friends who four weeks ago you didn't realize had such strong opinions about this subject, have put, it on, put something out that says, if you are wearing uh, a mask to cover your face, you are a raving idiot. That it causes hypoxia. It's going to cause you to rebreathe any virus that you have. You're, you're just a complete and total ignoramus if you're doing that. Guaranteed you can find somebody that's put an article up by that. Sometimes you'll find that article written by one person, and you'll find an article that somebody else posted by the same person that says, we should all be wearing masks every day. We should sleep in our masks. We should wear them in the car. We should wear them at home. We should wear them everywhere. And some people are really, really excited about the fact that we should all be wearing masks. I had someone on my feet, someone that, that I love dearly, that was, that was saying, if you aren't wearing a mask when you go to Walmart, she said, that then you're saying to the world, you don't care about anybody's health but your own. So here we have two completely diametrically opposed opinions. Everybody wants to couch their opinion in scientific-sounding information. I looked last night. Nowhere in the Bible does it say whether or not I should wear a mask. I can look at some of the Old Testament laws about if you have leprosy, maybe we should walk around and go, 
possibly unclean. I don't know. That's for smarter people than me to decide. Here's what God's word does address, though. Psalm 133, it says, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mounts of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing life forevermore. Here, that text is saying that when two brothers are together in unity, that is God commanding life forevermore. That's a touch of heaven. In 1 Corinthians 8, Paul, in talking about whether or not you should eat meat offered to idols, says, food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. He admits at the beginning of the argument that the whole argument is stupid. doesn't matter whether you eat meat, offered to idol or not, because food is just something that's going to pass through your body. It doesn't matter. But, he says, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Here's what we can get from God's Word. If you're around a brother who feels like they're afraid or that the safest thing to do is wear a mask, wear a mask. If it's going to help me in my relationship with my brother, I'll wear five or six of them. I don't know what the truth is. You don't either. Fawcett or whatever his name is doesn't know either. Nobody knows. So what we need to worry about is that my brother in Christ across from me, instead of thinking about whether or not I've got on a mask, is focused on the fact that guy oozes Jesus. If it's going to offend somebody for me to wear a mask, I'm not going to wear a mask. Because I want my brother, when I walk away, to think nothing but, man, that guy is covered up in some Jesus. And so I'm not going to worry and fuss and fight about stuff that doesn't matter. If I wear a mask and it's going to kill me, or whether I don't wear a mask and it's going to kill me, I don't care to be absent from the bodies to be present with Christ. If me wearing a mask is going to give me an opportunity to share Jesus, I'm going to wear it. If going around naked is going to, well, if going around in gym shorts and a t-shirt is going to help me put Jesus out, I'm going to do that. I'm not going to focus on my opinion about little things. What God's Word is telling me to do is focus on the people that you're around and show them love. Paul said of the church in 1 Corinthians, our only rule, the only rule we have in the church is love. What is the most loving thing to do in this situation? Now that doesn't mean that we're all squishy and hugs and, and that doesn't mean that at all because sometimes the most loving thing you can do is look your brother in the face and say, dude, you're hosing your life up. And sometimes the most loving thing you can do is not say a word. And sometimes the most loving thing you can do is not say anything but go to somebody's house and cut their grass. We look for and think about, and the litmus test we use is love. We learn that from God's Word. God's Word is sufficient because it changes 
who we are in the light of whose we are, which we've seen throughout the book of Ephesians. And so we have to be people of the book. We have to use the weapon that God has given us. Lord, we pray your blessings on us as we go from this place. Lord, I pray that you would keep us safe. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be your hands and feet, that we would be your people as we go from here. Lord, we love you, and we praise you, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Go serve your king.